the uh, interchange between those who were leaders in the temple and otherwise, and Jesus, who is preaching the kingdom of God. Matthew 21, verses 23 through 27. If you're there, I'd ask you to stand if you're able with me, and let's read these verses together. Matthew 21, 23 says, And when he, that is Christ, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who who gave you this authority? Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, then he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In introduction to our message this morning, let me remind you that this circumstance is not entirely unique. It's happened before already, that is, Jesus' authority has been challenged at a prior time. Turn back with me a few pages to chapter 12 of the book of Matthew, verses 38 through 42. This is not the only occasion. It happened several times when Jesus was confronted by the elites of his day. In this uh, passage in Matthew chapter 12, there's scribes and Pharisees that have and bone to pick with him. In uh, Matthew chapter 21, the uh, two references to leaders are chief priests and elders. Later at the close of Matthew 21, it says in verse 45 that the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables and perceived that he, that is Jesus, was speaking of them. Jesus continues to address them, though not directly to their question, in the two parables that follow Matthew 21. So rewinding a little bit, Let us notice in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42, the disingenuous mob of scribes and Pharisees demanding a sign from him. You'll remember these words, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that is Jesus again, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus' answer in this section in chapter 12 is similar to his answer in chapter 21. 
And he is clear. There is therefore sufficient testimony. Sufficient testimony, Jesus declares, to condemn those who are asking Jesus for a sign, the scribes and the Pharisees, in chapter 12, verse 38 through 42. Sufficient testimony to condemn them. In fact, it has reached the threshold and beyond long before their questioning. That is to say, if those who inhabited Nineveh saw the testimony of Jonah's authority and were therefore compelled to repent of their sin and to trust the one true God, how much more evidence had the scribes and the Pharisees and indeed all this adulterous generation received at the word and deed of Jesus Christ God in flesh. The queen of the south, likewise, the queen of Sheba, she was inspired, motivated just on hearing the report of Solomon's great wealth and provision and his wisdom, how God had favored and blessed his servant. She was so compelled by that testimony that was told to her likely by merchants and travelers returning from the great kingdom that she was moved to come and to seek out this great wisdom and testimony and traveled, that is to say, from the ends of the earth to hear of what she had been told. Yet something greater, infinitely greater, than Jonah and Solomon was here. Who was the something greater? The something was Jesus Christ Himself. And this is a lesson for us. You know, there's another point in Scripture where someone says, begs Christ, please, if you raise uh, someone from the dead to return to testify to my family, then truly they will repent and believe. So they don't join me here in, eternally, in, in eternal suffering and condemnation in hell. What does Jesus say? Well, that won't do it. It won't be sufficient evidence. In fact, even if you saw the dead raised to life, it wouldn't be enough to change your heart. If you saw Jesus walking in the flesh, testifying to His authority by His word and His works, that alone would not be enough to convince you if you remain self-important, self-righteous, and self-serving. Thus, the analogies of Scripture to describe our sinful condition are absolutely sound. We are indeed dead in our trespasses and sins. It takes a resurrection of the soul to cause our ears to be open and our eyes to see the testimony of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we would sooner remain self-important, self-righteous, and self-serving, refusing to admit that we have a testimony of Jesus Christ that leaves us without excuse, yet we will offer one anyway. But the Word of God delivers the same truth to us as it did through the mouth of Christ to the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, the Sadducees, and all who opposed Him. And that word says, you have received testimony sufficient to condemn you if you do not repent of your sins. Indeed, Romans 1 tells us, if God had not uttered a word through His Son, all creation shouts that He is real. In this incident in Matthew 21, now moving back to our primary text this morning, it is truly a genius way. It is truly magnificent how Jesus handles the situation. There's much to learn from this example. This is a perfect example of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.19. He proclaims the following, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. Again, the wisdom of of this world, that is, the wisdom of the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, it is folly 
to God. And he catches the wise in their craftiness. This morning we have noted already and will note further in Matthew 21 how Jesus catches the wise in their craftiness. Matthew 21 provides a perfect example of this. This is truth delivered in real time. Matthew Henry writes of this incident, he says, while his, that is Jesus' adversaries, thought by their power to have silenced him, he by his wisdom silenced them. His adversaries, those that opposed Christ, those that challenged his authority, again, the priests and elders, Though they thought they could, by their exercise of power, standing with arms crossed at the door of the temple. You see the setting here, again, as we read, says in verse 23, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him. This uh, upon his return, it says in verse 18, in the morning as he was returning to the city. What happened before that? Well, he had cleansed the temple. And verses 12 and following, Jesus entered the the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. So after these moments, Jesus returns to the city. He goes straight up to the temple, knowing full well who he would meet. And there they are, the elders and the scribes, with their arms crossed, and all of their robes and their phylacteries broad, as the word says, and their tassels, and all of their symbols of authority and self-righteousness, self-importance, and self-serving endeavors, and they stand there and they say, who do you think you are disrupting the operations of this place? Who do you think you are receiving the praises and the admiration of the commoners and the children who cry, Hosanna to the Son of David. And Jesus answers them, but He does so in a way that confounds their wisdom and shows them to be foolish, challenges their authority, and asserts His own. Here's a heading for you. The temple confrontation of Matthew 21 presents four things in brief this morning. Number one, a challenge to authority. The temple confrontation of Matthew 21 presents a challenge to authority. That is, Jesus presents a challenge to authority, indeed to all authorities. And we see that represented in this text. Secondly, we see presented a frivolous charge. The charge, the objection that is brought to Christ is frivolous, and we will see that in context. Completely fabricated and spurious. It is deceitful, it's conniving, it is spiteful. Fourthly, there is presented in Matthew 21 in this confrontation an apologetics case in point. We see Jesus defending himself, if you will, Uh, Jesus as an apologist. What can we learn about defending the faith and the glory of Christ? By following or taking note of Jesus' own example. And then fourthly, we'll seek for application of these three points this morning. That is, Matthew 21 presents an applicable scenario. This is meaningful and relevant for our context today. First of all, the temple confrontation of Matthew 21 presents a challenge to authority. First, I would have you note there is a contrast between two categories of people that interact with Jesus in this section. This happens time and again in the gospel, but I'd have you notice the difference again in Matthew 21. It says in verse 9, speaking of crowds that followed him, the following, it says, The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. 
Do you notice what the crowds were doing? These were the common folk, right? These were those who followed Jesus, not presuming to question him. But they did exactly the opposite of what the scribes or the elders, in this case, and the priests did. Instead of questioning Jesus' authority, they granted unto him authority, that is. Or they affirmed his authority. They gave him praise and renown. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They extolled him as a prophet, as one in the lineage of David, David himself a king. They were submitting to his rule. They were declaring that he had right and authority over them. They were saying that they were less than he, and indeed they served and worshipped and praised and lived and moved at his pleasure. Likewise, there were others who submitted to Christ. Verse 14, it says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. This was a, sub a submission of a different sort. These were the indigent, those who, in who were impoverished, likely in material things, and certainly in their body as well. They did not have a whole bunch of health or ability, humanly speaking, of which to boast. They were the blind and the lame, yet they submitted to Christ, they submitted to them as the healer of the eyes, the healer of the limbs. You are the author of life, creator God, I submit to you, heal me. And so they came, and so he did. Finally, in this example of those who submitted to Christ, verse 15, we have the record of children, it says. Children were crying in the second half of the verse, out in the temple, saying with the crowds, Hosanna to the son of David. They, speaking of those who questioned Christ's authority, said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, Yes, and then quoting Psalm 8, verse 2, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. Let us pray, brothers and sisters in Christ, that out of our mouths the Lord would prepare praise. In this section, the Lord prepared praise out of the mouths of babes and of infants. He prepared praise out of the blind and the lame. He prepared praise out of the commoners and the folk that followed Christ because they were longing for a hero, for a Messiah, for the son of David, for the answer to the messianic hope. May we fellowship among those. May we be found among them, not among the second category who had challenged Christ's authority. Turn back with me to chapter 11 briefly. Christ has time and again in the course of the gospel highlighted the example of children to describe the kind of attitude and position we must have to be in right standing with Him. He says in 11, Matthew 11, 25, for instance, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Do you see how this is evident in the example of Matthew 21? Jesus, God, the Spirit revealed to the children, to the infants, to the blind and to the lame, the great things of the Father in heaven, the Lord of heaven and earth. I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, yet revealed them to children. Yet in Matthew 21, to whom did the things of God remain hidden? Well, certainly the priests and the elders, who with arms crossed and with their own ideas in mind, 
worshiping themselves and some idolatrous notion of authority, question Christ without any ground whatsoever. A champion of the meek, Christ appears in this text. He is either, that is to say, the champion of the meek, or he represents a challenge to the authorities that we would elevate above him. The children cry, Hosanna, and the chief priests and scribes cry, Foul. One worships and adores, and the second category says, Hmm, I'm not so sure. Again, in this text, notice with me, with me in the context of Matthew 21, the nature of this challenge to the authorities of the day. Again, Christ, in this temple confrontation, presents a challenge to authorities. And I would say, in context, two categories. Christ represents a challenge to the religious authorities of the day and the civil authorities of the day, the government and the church. Notice in verse 23 again, Matthew 21, it says, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Inquiring minds want to know in two categories. First of all, the ecclesiastic, or the religious, or the church authority. Those that were in charge of temple worship, the chief priests, they wanted to know by what authority Jesus was challenging them. But that wasn't the only authority that wanted to indict Christ. Also, the elders of the people. Now, these would be the ones commissioned to judge in civil matters. These would be the rulers, the governors, judges, magistrates, or in our day, presidents, legislatures, you know, uh, sheriffs and local bodies and so on that decide civil matters. The judges and the rulers, the courts of the day, they came to Christ as well. Why? Because they well recognized that Jesus and His authority and His actions represented a challenge to their position. So inquiring minds sent their representatives to Christ and wanted to know, by what right and authority do you presume to challenge the courts of our day and the religion of our day? This is very important to note, briefly, by way of application. Why? Because we live in a time and in a day where some within the church, they are willing to say that Christ represents a challenge to religious claims, but He doesn't present a challenge to social and to government and to civic claims. Let us keep the gospel separate entirely, that is to say, in the notion of some from governments. That is an impossibility. It is a biblical non sequitur. If we so truncate and minimize the gospel so that we consider its implications only having to do with individual concerns and exclusively with my heart and where it stands with the Lord, we miss the fact that Jesus Christ rules from heaven and He rules over all. And in the spirit of Psalm 2, everyone must answer to His authority. And if they do not, He represents a challenge to them and He will assert His authority ultimately in judgment over every government and every religion that does not bow the knee to Christ. Calvin has a great quote. 
I'll read it to you. It's a paragraph or so, but I couldn't find a way to shorten it and still keep its emphasis. Listen to the following. For Christ does not deny that it is an unnatural order for the uneducated multitude and children to be the first to magnify their voice, the coming of the Messiah. But as the truth is wickedly suppressed by those who ought to have been its lawful witness, it is, not wonder, is it not wonderful if God raises up others and to their shame makes choice of children? Hence we derive no slight consolation, for the wicked man... Wicked men leave no stone unturned for concealing the reign of Christ. Notice that phrase and consider our day. The wicked men leave no stone unturned for concealing the reign of Christ. We learn from this passage that their efforts are in vain. Let me interject. That is to say, no challenge to Christ's authority will ever prove successful. They, again speaking of the wicked, Calvin says, they hope that when some of the multitude, that is, carrying forward the kingdom of Christ, shall have been put to death, and others shall be silenced by fear, they will gain their object. But God will disappoint them. In other words, the autocrats, those false authority and idolatry claims who raise themselves above the knowledge of Christ, they think falsely that by persecuting, silencing, minimizing, marginalizing, and mocking the voice of the church, the true believers, that they shall silence the authority of Christ. But they will not. God will disappoint them, says Calvin. Again, for He will sooner give mouths and tongues to stones than allow the kingdom of His Son to be without witnesses. You and I may not be important people as the world counts importance. We may not be the modern equivalent of scribes, of Pharisees, of elders, of rulers, but what a privilege to be counted among the stones, among the uh, infants and nursing babies, among the blind and the lame, and the crowds that followed Christ in whom God has given praise. What a privilege. Christ represents a challenge to all authorities. And the only way to be in good standing and in submission to His authority is not to say, who do you think you are, but to say, you are the Son of David. Hosanna to your holy name. Secondly, the temple confrontation of Matthew 21 represents a frivolous charge. So implicit in the text is this accusation against Jesus. And I'll expand on a phrase I've used already. The elders and priests approach Jesus as if to say, Who do you think you are to receive the worship of the people and disrupt the operations of the temple? Who do you think you are? Let me say at this point that this would be a great question. This would have been a great question and a right one to ask if Jesus had not preceded his action with sufficient testimony to his authority. But as we've already read, the testimony of his authority had been compounding and had gone above and beyond what was reasonably required for the crowds and the elders and the chief priests to see that this was God in flesh, Messiah, son of David, bow and worship him. Listen to his every word. He is who he says he is. 
testified to by three categories this morning. Fulfilled prophecy, teaching, and signs and wonders. This charge against Jesus, who do you think you are to receive the worship of the people and disrupt the operations of the temple? That accusation was false. It was spurious because Christ's authority had already been demonstrated all through the record of this very gospel by three things, just three categories, not exhaustive. First, fulfilled prophecy. Secondly, Jesus' own teaching. And thirdly, signs and wonders. And this was one of the primary purposes of why Jesus did these things, why He fulfilled prophecy, why He taught as He did, delivering the message of the kingdom, and why He demonstrated His authority with signs and wonders. It was to show that He had every right and duty to assert His lordship and authority over all, over all nations, tribes, tongues, peoples, everywhere for all time and over all history. Just briefly and an overview, you can mark these for further study. Matthew is diligent to record example prophecies of the Old Covenant to give us a taste of what Christ has shown already. Chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, the virgin birth of Christ and the circumstances of His incarnation. Shout, the Messiah is here. Bow and worship Him. And what do the shepherds and wise men do from the very beginning? They had far less testimony to the authority of Christ, yet they worshipped Him. They bowed before this baby in a manger. A baby? What, is a ba- what am I doing bowing before a baby? Well, if you knew who that baby was, you better believe. Your knees would be bruised as you asked gravity to double its force to bring you even quicker to your knees before the Son of God, before God manifest in flesh. Yes, a baby. But this itself was a testimony to His almighty authority. Just one example. Consider chapter 2, verse 6, the very geographic conditions of His arrival on this earth that He was born in Bethlehem, testified to the prophets of old, now fulfilled in their midst. Chapter 3, verse 3, it was prophesied that there would be one who would precede Him and prepare the way. And so John the Baptist preached the message and delivered the baptism of repentance, and the crowds followed him. And this itself was testimony. And John himself pointed the way. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, himself baptizing Christ. Chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. Christ is ministering in out-of-the-way places among those of the Decapolis region that are rejected, lost, and they're the outcasts. He's fulfilling prophecy right out of Isaiah. Every footstep of his sandal-shodden feet brings the gospel to people prophesied of old. Uh, Chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, the suffering servant of Isaiah is revealed in Christ's own teaching and words. Chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, as Jesus declares judgment, it is shown in the text to be a fulfillment of old covenant prophecy and in our very text this morning. Chapter 21, verses 5 through 16, we have the triumphal entry which was prophesied in the book of Zechariah. And now, right before, all for all to see, Jesus is entering on this foal, the colt, this beast of burden, to the praises of the crowd, yet to the jeers and to the questions of the chief priests and the elders. Who stands in the right place? Indeed, those who recognize that that charge is frivolous indeed because he is fulfilling prophecy before our very eyes. Secondly, 
this frivolous charge is demonstrated as such by Jesus' own teaching. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus has unveiled in His first discourse of preeminent proportions, truth and weight beyond anything the crowd had ever experienced, their rabbis or their scribes teaching them prior to. Matthew 27, 28 through 29, the crowds testified to His authority and His teaching. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Why were the crowds astonished? And the priests and elders obstinate is because they did not recognize His authority in His very teaching. You recall when Jesus delivered these words time and again, He says, But I say to you, assuming the role of the declaration of the Word of God in the Old Covenant, Behold, or thus saith the Lord. Now the Lord Himself was speaking when He said, I say unto you. This was the authority of His teaching. Now this authority was recognized by a contingency of the very people that now questioned Him at, an, at another point earlier in His life. In Luke chapter 2, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but talk about the indictment on the Pharisees and those who had questioned Him. Here we have a record of Jesus' teaching and its power and effect long before He would, uh, entered the scene and was revealing it in all of its glory when he preached the message of the kingdom. This is at a moment when he was still young in verse 41 of Luke 2. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he, that is Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. Then the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group... They went a day's journey, but when they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Listen in 46. After three days, they found him where? In the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. The teachers in the temple were amazed at Christ's answers when he was but 12 years old. This, again, is why their charge, when he is now 30-something, and invading the temple with authority, is indeed spurious. They have no right to challenge him. John chapter 3, verse 2, Who came to Jesus by night? But not, it, Was it not a learned man among these same types of ruling elites? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that is the honorable term for teacher, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Do you notice a representative of these religious elites themselves said, we know that you are from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, who do you think you are, Jesus? This accusation was absolutely false because those even among this religious elite had already recognized Jesus' authority. Finally, His signs and wonders. Chapter 12, verses 28 through 32, there is an exorcism in view. And Jesus says, when you see one among you that is casting out demons, you'll know 
that the Son of Man has come. That is, when he demonstrates authority over the spiritual realm, you will see that the kingdom of God is among you. Verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Again, a testimony to Christ's authority is overwhelming in his signs and wonders, in his casting out of the demons. In chapter 14, recording two occasions of him feeding thousands and indeed walking on the water, we see evidence compiled upon evidence that this was not a mere man, not a mere teacher, but God in flesh. The one whose voice is over the waters, the one who is Jehovah, God himself, Yahweh of the Old Testament, who is now appearing to have and appearing and, and in so doing showing himself to have total authority over all, even the elements of nature. Chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, the crowds again recognize Jesus' authority, and this is after a healing and a declaration of the forgiveness of sins. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's verse 6. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Again, notice what the crowd recognized that the elders didn't. They recognized that this man who had the power to heal the paralytic could also forgive his sins, and they responded accordingly, appropriately. They were afraid, and they glorified God because He had given such authority to this man, Jesus Christ. These were the signs and wonders that ought to have shaken everyone to the core. They were available for all to behold. They are available for us to behold even in the immediate context. How in the world would you have, can you imagine yourself having the audacity to question this man after in 2112, he has just healed the blind and the lame who came to him in the temple? Especially as we recognize the parallel to 2 Samuel 5, where David himself says that the blind and the lame, which was a curse and an epithet, labeled or leveled against him by the Jebusites, would prove to show that he had authority and power, and he did so, uh, and, it, and he did so, that is, David showed himself to be the anointed one by defeating his enemies, yet Jesus took it a step further, an exponential step further. He not only defeats his enemies, but he indeed heals the blind and the lame. This is the one who has arrived among us, and we have the audacity to question. Really, it is the scribes, it is the chief priests, it's the elders, it's the Pharisees, it's the religious elite, and in some, it's the self-important, the self-righteous, and the self-serving who ought to be shaking in their boots because Christ stands as judge over them. We do not, no naysayer on Facebook, no upstart atheist, no self-important multiple PhD academic, no... Uh, or no political pundit, no authority of any type, no ruler, no international body, no large corporate entity, no CEO, no president of any nation, no celebrity of international importance, 
Nobody stands as judge over Christ. They all will bow. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. And everything that I have given you this morning is evidence in the case against them because the Word of God is available for them to see who this man was and is that walked among us. Thirdly, this morning, the temple confrontation of Matthew 21 presents an apologetics example or a case in point. I would have you notice that Christ does not indulge the presuppositions, you will, or the preconceived ideas, the things that the elders and the priests believe and bring to the conversation. He challenges them directly and does not allow them to, uh, to retain them. You might think when Jesus answered in verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. You might think that Jesus is being coy at that point. The word coy means to kind of be elusive and to evade the question, to distract or to dance around the issue. That is not the case. Jesus has already delivered sufficient information by the compendium that I have already delivered to these that are questioning Him. He is not obligated to bring any more. When they asked Him in chapter 12, what sign will you do so that we can believe you? We reserve the right to be skeptical. Jesus says you have no right to be skeptical. There are those who saw far less the testimony of God Almighty's authority and repented at the word of the Lord through a mere human prophet. Now he sends his son. If you disregard this one, there is no hope for you. You have no right to be skeptical. Notice in John chapter 1, evidence to this effect that is added to what we've all already noted. In John chapter 1, there was a contingency that was sent to question John the Baptist himself as to his legitimacy. Verse 19, or excuse me, I believe it's John 19. Yes, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So at this point, this could be a sincere moment for a sincere question. There's a contingency sent from the priests and Levites to verify the claims of John the Baptist. Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. So he said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Why do you say this about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had sent from the Pharisees. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Very important parentheses there in verse 24. So these are representatives reporting to the Pharisees on behalf of the religious leaders who John claimed to be. They asked him, verse 25, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am, not, I am not worthy to untie. 
These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Notice the very next thing that John records, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus, that is, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. Notice, John had a purpose in baptizing. For this purpose, that is, the revealing of the Messiah, I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the dove descend from heaven, like, or a spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John says that the entire purpose, game, and goal of his baptism was to reveal the Son of God. And he points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb, I testify to you, this is the Son of God. Now, when we consider the context of Matthew 21, we can see what Jesus is doing when he turns the tables. This is significant indeed. Jesus answered them, verse 24, I will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? Heaven or from man? Do you see the genius? If they say heaven... John has already said, the whole reason I baptize is to show you the Lamb of God, the Son of God is here, this is He, follow Him. If they say, these cowards, they are such cowards. If they were consistent with their own thinking, they would have rejected the baptism of John. They couldn't do it, couldn't do it. Because they knew, probably deep inside, that they would be in deep trouble. They feared the crowds, but there was another category in their understanding. They knew exactly what they were doing. They had no interest in the truth, no interest in bowing to Christ, only interested in preserving their own authority. They were willing to be disingenuous, to be insincere, to be spiteful, vindictive, deceitful, conniving, and spurious. And that's why they were asking Christ questions like this. Christ completely turns the tables on them and shows them to be cowards. They won't even reject the baptism of John. These were the elders And the scribes who stood there, remember the image in our mind, with arms folded at the threshold of the temple. How dare you enter here? All of a sudden, they're backing up. No, 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 we don't know. We're not sure. You see what happened here? Jesus is showing us how to defend the faith. He's telling us that in these examples, we have all the standing in the world. If we stand on Jesus Christ, we have assurance, confidence, security, and hope against the most important, the most learned, and the most motivated objectors. So stand, therefore. Christ had given sufficient information. This wasn't a coy moment in Christ's ministry. This was Him asserting who He was directly to those who challenged. And in so doing, He turned the tables And when he did, he gained the authoritative 
high ground. Jesus was identifying the folly of the fool to calibrate his own response against. There is a term that is popular to some, presuppositional apologetics. It's a fancy word which seeks to go to Scripture to learn how to defend the faith. Well, in this example, Jesus was modeling for us how to defend the faith. Don't concede the authority of Christ. This line of questioning and response holds the objector accountable for his position. Jesus highlights the merits of the question by conditioning his response upon the integrity of the questioner. In other words, Jesus showed that these men had no standing. They weren't honestly asking so that they could submit to Jesus. They had ulterior motives. Jesus revealed them. If Jesus answered their question at face value, he would have effectively conceded to their false and arbitrary authority claims as if they had a right to demand that he would answer to worldly authorities. No, he turns the tables and demands that they answer his question. They had no right, that is to say, to bring God incarnate before the court of humanistic conventions. The questioner in this case had no standing. To take this question as legitimate is to grant that self-deception, obfuscation, insubordination, and truth suppression are okay. But we are to call those out as sinful. Romans chapter 1 tells us that all men know in one sense the truth that they love to suppress, but they are without excuse. And the chief priests, likewise, and the elders of all people, they knew full well the authority of Christ was well attested. The honest man would bow before him, no matter his position in life, just like Nebuchadnezzar, just like Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry in the way, and you perish. So Christ turns the tables with his response. He shows that the burden of justification rests on the men who question him no matter how important or well-positioned they consider themselves to be. Finally, this morning and in closing, let us draw a couple applications. How can this information serve us well today? Well, first of all, we see in this, ex in this message in Matthew 21 an example of how the academic and the autocrat, that is the important ruler or the all-powerful ruler by man's terms anyway, are defied. They're on uh, extra reading on the website under excerpts this week. I'll have a little report on an academic. That's a story that was recalled by that godless rag of a periodical, The New Yorker, which I absolutely hate that kind of thing. The publications of this world to give confidence to the skeptic and the unbeliever and the God-hater, celebrating as worthy of adoration and praise the lowest, most debased examples of our depravity. Well, back in like 63 or something, they quoted a famous atheist when he was in conversation with a lady who asked him at a dinner party when he was 90 years old, what if you're wrong, Bertrand Russell, and you stand before God one day? What will you say? And a twinkle in his eye, he answered, insufficient evidence. That's not going to fly at the bar of glory. I've given you just a snapshot, just a smidgen, just the tip of the iceberg of the evidence sufficient to condemn every living creature. And if God had never spoken in the living word, creation itself witnesses and testifies against us, according to Romans 1. Bertrand Russell will burn in his obstinance. 
if he did not repent, or is today if he did not repent for that position. Second example, how the academic and autocrat are, defi- are defied in Matthew 21. I remember hearing a story told by the able uh, Ravi Zacharias of Stalin on his deathbed. And in the last dying gasps, it said that Stalin shook his fist and looked upward and laid down and gave up the ghost. And by an extremely insightful phrase, Ravi, I'll always remember this, he said, one wonders who he was shaking his fist at. Yeah, that's right. Stalin didn't die ignorant of the reality of God. He died defiant of the one he knew ruled over him and was about to take his last breath. What will happen when he enters into that courtroom of the last day and final judgment? Again, guilty as charged. And the evidence of the revelation of God will witness against him. So those are easy pickings, are they not? Those are the bad out there kind of rulers and authorities. Let's make the application a little closer to home this morning. Consider the gospel in our own self-interest. You know, there was a time, and we read about it, when the Pharisees and rulers and the religious leaders were interested and fascinated by the idea that the revelation of God may be actually dawning on them. And that's what we read of, I interpret, in John chapter 1. The ruling class at first was fascinated with the thought that perhaps we are living in a significant moment. A moment. Let's send a, a contingency to review, to interview this John the Baptist and see what he's like. But what happened? This initial interest faded. And they quickly grew hard of heart when they realized that Christ threatened their self-interest. They pretended, therefore, to have standing and skepticism. And this hits a little closer to home, does it not? When we first come to Christ, when we first hear of the gospel, when we're interested in the things of God, we may say, oh, it's a fascinating idea. I'm interested in Christianity. But as... You live just a little bit in the Christian life and open up your word of uh, just a crack more, you find that this Jesus Christ is just not, not just a fascinating mascot of something that might be any old worldview, but no, he is a judge over sinners and a sufficient redeemer, and he is the only way, truth, and the life, and declares the terms of obedience to God Almighty through him and in him. And it, comes to, and it comes to our reality and attention that at that moment that Jesus Christ challenges our self-interest. And following Him means to die to ourself and to be crucified. And so this becomes an applicable scenario for us. In closing this morning, I'll close with the idea I opened with that the book of Matthew identifies children as a good example of what repentance and following Christ look like, looks like. Chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. 19, 13 through 14. And 21, 15 through 16. All of these examples in Matthew use the little ones and the children to present to us what could be taken, I declare to you, as a repentance model. In other words, what ought our attitude toward Christ be if we can see in the scenario of Matthew 21 that the obstinance and the questioning of the priests and the elders is wrong? Well, I submit to you in the example offered in Matthew that little children 
are a perfect way to see ourselves in light of the submission the ruling Christ requires. And therefore, let us repent of our self-importance, our own self-righteousness, our own tendency to be self-serving. And finally, as this gospel unfolds, the book of Matthew, and we will see in coming weeks, circumstances would seem in due course to validate the scribes, priests, and Pharisees and other questioners of Jesus Christ. Didn't they win the argument and deliver the last word at His crucifixion? No, and a thousand times no. Instead, as the gospel continues to unfold, they provided in their condemnation the ultimate foil that is contrast or enemy or argument against Christ to demonstrate His greatest show of authority of all, and that is in His sacrificial death, His payment for sin, and His victory over death, signed, sealed, and delivered to us in His resurrection. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we see our great champion, Jesus Christ, God and man, fully unveiled in the pages of Scripture in shades of bold clarity. We pray that our attitude, our humility, and our childlike faith, Lord Jesus, would meet, Lord, the standard that you require to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And to the degree we fall short, we repent this morning, and we pray that you would unveil areas of self-importance, self-righteousness, and self-serving in our own hearts, that we may repent and turn from that sin and confess that Jesus is Lord over us, over me, over all, so that we might join you, Lord, in that great victory parade on the final day, singing with the crowds, Lord, echoing with the accolades of those who followed you into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.